purely unscientific study and poll amongst us that will have no impact upon the course of human history. But I still need to know as we start, how many of you are snooze button enthusiasts? How many of you hit the snooze button? Really? Uh, so the vast majority of you hear your alarm clock and you just get up? Is this what I'm saying? Okay. See a few heads. That is not me. Steph is the one that the alarm clock goes off and she just rolls out of bed. I am a snooze button professional. So snooze button go or the alarm goes off and I hit the snooze and, and that's good. Well, it's good except for when you hit the wrong button. And it's even worse when you hit the wrong button on a Sunday as a pastor. So this did not happen this morning, right? But it has happened, and I'll never forget one morning in particular, and, it, you know, by God's gracious providence, it was when I think we had all of our kids, well, we did definitely had all four kids, and I think they were all at that combined height of needing the most care and attention, getting them ready as, as possible, and so... Uh, one morning, I hit the snooze button, I thought, and evidently, I just turned the alarm off on a Sunday, and all of a sudden, I hear Steph, wake up, wake up, we overslept, and I'm, you know, I have no idea, you know, when that happens, you have no clue what day it is, or what you're supposed to be doing, why she's yelling at me, and, and I roll over, and when I realized it was Sunday morning, and I was supposed to be here at the time, I think I was playing guitar, and I wasn't here, and it was time to get to church, and so we went through the house, what are, what are we yelling, wake up, wake up, get dressed, get dressed, you know, we're hitting everything on all cylinders, and we run through the house. The kids go out, we roar up to church, and then we walk in, and we're all just perfect, you know. Just walk in like, no big deal, you know, we do this all the time. Well, that moment, right, of frenzy, that moment of going through the house, wake up, wake up, wake up, get dressed, get dressed. There, there was an urgency about our task in that moment. There was an urgency because we knew it was time to wake from slumber, there was time, it was time to get dressed, and it was time to go to church. Our passage this morning, Romans 13, is essentially the same exact call from the Apostle Paul. Wake up and get dressed. Wake up and get dressed. And, and some of us, as we approach 2021, we need to hear this same appeal. We need to gain this gospel urgency from the Apostle. So I want us to read together this morning. From Romans chapter 13, be verses 11 through 14, we are continuing our study in Romans, picking up. It's been a few weeks. You remember the last sermon dealt with Romans 8, or 13, 8 through 10, talking about our love for our neighbor, that love for our neighbor does no wrong. It is the fulfillment of the law, that all the law is fulfilled in the loving of our neighbor. And so out of that, Paul writes in verse 11, he says this, he says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify 
its desires. Now, as we've gone through Romans, we've seen frequently that, that Paul calls us to holy living. And, and typically, when he calls us to holy living, what does he do? He, he reminds us what Christ has done. He calls us to look backward. But now, what is, what is Paul doing? He, he's calling us to holy living, but he's calling us to look forward. Not just to look back at what Christ has done, but to look forward about what awaits us. And so this call to holy living is to be is, is, is a reminder of what is coming, what awaits, that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. As we go through this passage, what I want you to see is that, that Paul begins with a statement of reality there in verse 11, and then he follows that with three commands for our lives today based on that reality. And so the reality we want to look at first is, is the reality that the hour has come for us to wake. This is where he begins. He says, wake up, wake up. The hour has come for us to wake from sleep. And so this calling, this, this reality check, this call to wake up has two purposes. He's talking about the, the time and the, this time that he's talking about that you know the time has two purposes, what he's doing here. The first purpose is this, is he wants to maintain or wants us to maintain future awareness. Or he wants to give us an, if you want to get theological, he wants to give us an eschatological awareness. An awareness of what's coming, an awareness of the end time. That we need to live with that awareness. That we need to maintain one eye on the future. And he begins by saying what? He says, you know the time. You know the time. Listen, as God's people, we are not unaware of what is next. We're not unaware. We don't live ignorant of the fact that Christ is returning. We absolutely know what is next. Christ spoke frequently of this, didn't he? You, you heard in the, the, the scripture reading from Pastor Mike in Matthew 24, 37 to 44, Jesus' warning that he would return. You read in Matthew 24, verse 27, just previous to that, he said, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Or you read in Mark chapter 13, verse 33 to 36, or actually 32 to 36, Jesus says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus says you don't know when that's coming, but he doesn't say you don't know if I'm coming, does he? He says you may not know when, but you can guarantee one thing, I am coming. Luke Chapter 17, Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Christ spoke frequently that he would return. He would come back and people may be living as though that won't happen. Our world may be consumed by everything other than an anticipation for the return of Christ, but that does not mean that he is not returning. 
Elsewhere in the New Testament, we read of the return of Jesus. In 2 Peter 3, verse 10, we read, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Or we read in Revelation 16, 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may, go, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. James 5, 8 says, The coming of the Lord is at hand. Or you that have been studying in Thessalonians, you went through Sunday school, you'll remember 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11, where Paul writes this. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, people of God, are not in darkness. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us to wrath. What has he destined us to? But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We are not unaware we are not unaware. So, so Paul writes, he says, wake up. Wake up to the Thessalonians. He says, you don't even need me to remind you. You know this. You know it. He, he says to us, wake up. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. You know the time. We know the time. Our Lord told us what was coming. The, the writers of the New Testament reminded us what was coming. We are fully aware of the reality that Jesus will Return. We have been told, we have been warned, we have warned, we have been given a divine heads up. God has tipped his hand, so to speak. We have read the last chapter. We know how the story ends. We know what is next. And we must not live ignorant of that. We must not live as though we do not know. And so Paul first writes about the time. You know the time so that we would live with this future awareness. Awareness of what awaits. The second reason he, he writes this about time in this passage is he wants to foster a, a, a present sense of urgency. So he wants us to, to live with a, a future sense, a sense of what's going to happen, but he also wants to foster this urgency in our life right now. When, when he says that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He's writing of the, the future salvation, an eschatological salvation, a salvation that awaits us. 
In the New Testament, we read of salvation being something that happened in the past, something that is ongoing in the present, something that is or will happen in the future. If you want examples of that, in the past we read Ephesians 2.8. What does it say? For by grace you have been saved. In the present, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then we read also of the future aspect or a future dimension of salvation in Romans 5, 9, where, where Paul writes, since therefore we have not been justified by his, by his blood, or since therefore we have not been justified by his blood, I, I mistyped that, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Much more shall we be saved, he says, Right? So there's a, there's a past, a present, and a future element of salvation. This final salvation, ultimate salvation from the Lord, he says, is what? It is nearer to us now than it was yesterday. It's nearer to us now than it was the first day we believed. There's this sense of urgency that he's wanting to create. Just think about the different words for time we see here in verse 11 and 12a. He talks about the hour has come for us to wake. It is nearer, he says. The night is gone. It's far gone, right? The night is far gone. The day is at hand. There is a sense of urgency from the apostle there that salvation is nearer now than the moment we first believed. He's wanting to create this, this idea, and this understanding that, that time is going, time is ticking, and salvation, ultimate salvation, final salvation of the Lord is getting closer and closer and closer and closer to us. Every day we live is a day we live closer to standing before our maker. That should warm the hearts of many, and it should strike fear into the knees of many as well. It warms the hearts of the believer. It should cause the unbeliever to shudder, as we will stand before our maker. Now, when, when Paul writes this, we need to be clear, he is not trying to predict Jesus' return. He's not trying to say on on the, the 14th of March, Jesus is coming back. And, and some people have accused the Apostle Paul of saying, hey, listen, he's saying this right here, and it didn't come. Paul, Paul didn't know what he was talking about. God doesn't keep his word. Well, that's not what Paul's saying here. When he says that the day is at hand or the time is imminent, he's not trying to predict a date. To say at hand or or imminent, he, he's not expressing this idea of a calendar term as though it's something to be predicted. No, it simply means that it is the next thing to come. The return of Christ is the next thing coming down the pipe. It's like when you play musical chairs. You, you guys have played musical chairs, right? As a kid, maybe as a, at a fall festival or something, you get the joy of playing that as an adult and realize that it's not quite as fun as when you were a kid and didn't have to worry about missing the chair and landing on the floor. Well, musical chairs, what happens? The music starts, and everybody starts walking around. And what happens the longer the music plays? You, you start jumping from chair to chair, right? You want to get to that next chair because there's this sense of urgency. Why? 
because you know the next thing that's going to happen is what? The music stops and you've got to get a chair. You know what's going to happen. You don't know when it's going to happen, but you know what is going to happen. And it is the same thing for us. We don't know when Christ is returning, but we know that he is indeed going to return. So we look at the timeline of God's work throughout history. We look at all that God has done, starting at creation and just moving forward and and look at the timeline of his work of redemption. We see that the incarnation of Christ, his atoning work, his, his life atoning work on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, and there is nothing else remaining in his timeline of redemption outside of his return. See, he has risen from the grave. He has ascended on high. And the only thing that awaits is his return. We know that. It is imminent. We live in light of that. And so Paul writes, he says, listen, you need to know what's going to happen in the future. You need to have this sense of urgency. So it is time for you to wake up. There is urgency that this demands from us. We can't walk around as though we are sleeping, but I wonder how many of us are. I wonder how many of us are walking around as though we have all the time in the world and as though we're just slumbering through life and we're, we're captivated by the pleasures of the world. We've been rocked to sleep maybe by the pleasures of the world. We're so caught up in hobbies and entertainment, watching our kids grow up, experiencing a successful life that we have basically fallen asleep when it comes to living for the Lord. We no longer live with this sense of urgency. I wonder how many of us are just simply living as lazy Christians, playing religious games. Listen, this is no time for that. This is no time to be a lazy Christian. We've been given time. And that time is a gift. You may, you may think that your, your money is your greatest asset, most valuable asset. You may think that your family or your skill, or your profession is your most valuable asset. Listen, Time is our most valuable asset. It's our most valuable asset. We have a set amount of it, and we cannot get it back when it's gone. What will we choose to invest our time in? What will we choose to invest our time in? We must redeem the time. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, 15, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We must redeem the time. We must cash it in. We must make the most of it. I was reminded of what Jonathan Edwards wrote in his resolutions. He, he said, I resolve never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. What, what would that do to us? How, how might that change our life? if we resolved to be that intentional about our time? How might that impact us if we say, you know what, we're never going to lose one moment of time. We're going to improve it in the most profitable way we possibly can. God has given us time, and we know that that time is limited because every day I live, I'm closer to seeing my maker. I'm closer to standing before the Lord, and I'm going to make the most of every moment I'm given. There's an urgency about that. An urgency that Edwards had, an urgency that Paul calls us to. And in light of that, it leads us right into his three commands. See, Paul doesn't cast our gaze forward 
remind us of the reality of Christ's return just so that we would be theologically fat and happy. Theological truth is not meant to be set on a shelf and stared at. It's meant to be applied to our lives. And that's Paul's primary concern is not that we would just sit back and go, oh, wow, Jesus is coming back, and we just look forward to that day and just sit there and do nothing. No, his primary concern is that we would look, we would see that, there would be an urgency in our life that would dictate the way we live. And so he gives us three commands here, three exhortations, three imperatives about how we should live. The first one you see, verse 12b, it says, it says So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, if, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know that when we see darkness and light, it, it is explaining sin and versus holiness or worldly versus godly, that darkness equals sin and worldliness, light equals holiness, godliness. And so he's, he's saying here, cast off the works of the world, cast off the works of sin and put on the armor of light, the armor of holiness, the armor of godliness. It's this, this picture of taking something off and putting something on. Of me going outside, you know, it's Wisconsin, man, it is cold. And so I put on a heavy jacket. Anytime we had to go walk the dog, put on a heavy jacket. It's put off, put on. It's a similar terminology we see throughout the New Testament. If you want to look at it later, you can look in Colossians 3, 5 to 17, where Paul talks about putting away, putting to death, putting off sinfulness, and putting on godliness or you can look at ephesians 4 17 to 32 he does the same thing put off and put on it's something you can you, you can think of as a replacement principle that we should put off ungodliness but as we put it off we should replace it with godliness the, the problem sometimes is we just hear don't do this or put off and we try to get rid of something and we never put on godliness the problem with that is that when we get rid of something, it creates this void, this space, and it gets filled with something, right? So what do we fill it with? Do we fill it with just different worldly living, different ungodliness, different sinfulness, or do we fill it with godliness? Do we fill it with a pursuit of the Lord? Paul says, put off the ways of the world, cast them off, and put on the armor of light. Listen. There, there's a problem that we run into. If we are walking in ungodliness of the world, pursuing that which Christ saved us from, that, that's, that's problematic. And Paul is calling us away from that. He's calling us to cast those things off. It is the first thing he said in 1 Thessalonians 5. We already read it. He says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the salvation or hope of salvation. It's the same thing. He's calling us to put on Christ. So let us cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light is his first command. The second command is let us walk properly as in the daytime. Now you understand what he means when he says walk. He, he's talking about godly living, that we are simply to live a godly life. If we're going to do that, it means that we have to renounce ungodliness. It means we reject what is sinful, and we pursue personal holiness. I would ask, we stand at the brink of 2021. What concern will you give to personal holiness? 
How much will you strive to live for the Lord? How much will you long to live a righteous life? How much will you reject ungodliness? He says, walk properly as in the daytime. And he gives us three pairs of sin that he calls out very specifically. He says, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Three kind of areas of sin. These are, these are all closely related and tied together. But if you take and you just group these, the first one, he says orgies and drunkenness. That, that word orgies is, is referring to this, this drunken, riotous parade that happened at night in those days. It was a, a term that was used to describe these groups. They would get together late at night. They would have drinking parties. They would walk down the street with torches and, and loud music and be up into the wee hours of the night. And he says drunkenness. Don't, don't get involved in drunkenness. Don't get involved in these drinking parties. He's calling us away from the abuse of alcohol. The second thing he calls us away from is sexual immorality and sensuality. He, he's calling us away from from unrestrained lust and immorality, sexual sins such as adultery, pornography, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality. He's calling us away from all of that. Do do not pursue that. Those are the things of the world. Those are the things of sinful flesh. It's not the things of light. Those are the things of darkness. And then last, he calls us away from quarreling and jealousy. Quarreling and jealousy, selfish attitudes and and actions that show an utter disregard for others. Actions and attitudes that that destroy community. They demonstrate a complete lack of humility. And he calls us away from those. Listen, you understand all of these that he calls us to, or calls us away from. He calls us away from orgies and drunkenness, from sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling and jealousy. All of these sins arise from seeking our own pleasure. They're all focused on me. Every one of them are a failure to love and obey God and a failure to love others. He had just talked about in verses 8 through 10 that that we are to love each other, that that is the debt that we can never repay fully as our love for those around us. And what he calls us out of here is an absolute rejection of love of others. It's focused on self. It's selfish. And he calls us away from those things. The third command he gives us. The third command is verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision. Provision for the flesh. Listen, when, when he says this, it's, it's more than just saying, I'm a Christian. To, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ is more than just saying, I'm a Christian. And then living however we want to. Now, to, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ is a habitual association and identification with him. It is walking and living in fellowship with Christ. It is being in union with him. So much so that he is our clothing. He is our armor. 
He is the one that clothes us and warms us from the cold and loneliness and guilt of the world. He is the armor that protects us from the enemy's attacks. He is the clothing that covers the nakedness of our sin. He is the clothing that displays our purpose in life. You, you understand that, that you can tell a lot by some of, about someone by what they're wearing. I could look at Mark Fothergill in his college days and see that he was a basketball player because of the uniform he wore with shorts that were way too short. Have you seen pictures of that? I, I can look at an individual in the, ar- in the army wearing fatigues in the middle of the airport and understand what? He is a soldier. If I walk through the airport and I, I see a plane unload and, and those coming off are in fatigues, I don't look at them and go, oh, it's a bunch of businessmen. No, I look and I, I see that it's soldiers and I'm appreciative for their sacrifice. I look and I, I see the one with dirty knees and the work belt, the tool apron. And I understand he's a carpenter. I look and see the man dressed in a three-piece suit in the middle of the week, and I understand he's a businessman. You see, what we clothe ourselves with shows people what we're about, our purpose, what we're doing. And here Paul says, clothe yourselves with Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that people would know who you are, what you're about, that you are a child of God, that the way I live would be so visible to others that they would see that I am clothed with Christ, that I am wearing Him, that He is who I'm about. He is my purpose in life. That my life would be such that they would see love of Christ, the joy that is in Christ, the peace of Christ exuding from me because I have put Him on And we are to put him on, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, Paul says. Make no provision for the flesh. Listen, he is saying we must not give sin an opportunity to wreak havoc in our lives. Part part of the problem that we have is that we make provisions for the flesh. We make provisions for it. And Paul says, listen, don't mess around with it. Don't plan for it. Don't don't invite sin in. Don't be ignorant of it, living as though it's not there. Don't pretend it won't destroy you. Don't think that you're too holy to be undermined by the devastating results of sin in your life. None of us are immune to sin. None of us are, are such that we can just go and live however we want to and not have to worry about it. If we live that way, we are making provisions for the flesh. And we must not do that. We must not give sin an opportunity to come in and to destroy us and to undermine our testimony of the Lord, our effectiveness for living for the gospel. We must not do that. Listen, here's where I think this hits home for us. Is that all of these areas of sin that he calls us from are alive and well in our day. That they all are crouching at our doorstep. 
And the, the question we have to ask is, are we just going to go through the motions this year? Or are we just going to play this game and live as though we're not in the middle of a spiritual warfare where Satan's trying to attack and undermine our testimony, our walk with the Lord? Are we going to make provision for the flesh? Are we going to set ourselves up for a disaster and keep living as though this temptation is no big deal? I'm just going to keep it right here. I don't want to really get rid of it. If I really get rid of it, it's going to just inconvenience my life. So I'm just going to make provision for the flesh right there. See, we live in a day in which the isolation, the frustration, the depression of COVID-19 that has fallen upon many has led many to numb themselves of that with alcohol or some other abuse, some other dependency which I, I want to escape, I want to lose the oppression of the weariness that I feel, and I, I'm just going to numb the pain by drinking myself to sleep. There are some in our lives who that is happening, perhaps some of you, and you just don't talk about it. And you are living, giving provision for the flesh and drunkenness. It's also a day in which the temptation for sexual sin is stronger and more aggressive than ever before. A day in which every time we click on our smartphone, temptation awaits. A day in which what was once view, viewed as sinful, sexually immoral, is now seen as just normal. What everybody does, what everybody looks at, what should be embraced. What once was called sexual sin is now even applauded and assumed that we will fall into or run after. We live in a day in which sexual sin is everywhere. We live in a day in which we are constantly ready to quarrel. We see that on social media where you have people who basically are social media watchdogs. Where if, if someone posts something, they are constantly ready to jump on it and attack. Even in conversation. You just say the wrong thing, someone is constantly ready to jump on and attack. Quarrelsome. Quarrelsome. They, they just want to quarrel. They're, they're jealous, driven by jealousy. And it's something that we see everywhere. Instead of sitting down and talking with someone or listening to them, we're quick to quarrel, quick to attack. And Paul's calling us away from all that. He's saying, listen, wake up. It is time for you to wake up. You know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Do not give provision for the flesh. Do not follow after these things. Put these things off. Cast them off. Live for Christ. So if you struggle in these areas, I, I would call you to stand firm. Stand firm against pursuing other things to numb you from the difficulties of life. Stand firm against the rampant sexual immorality that awaits us around every corner. Stand firm against the temptation to be quarrelsome, to be a, a, kind of an attacker 
towards people. Be a peacemaker, in which we are called to be by Scripture. So as we close, I would simply say this. If you're entangled in any of these sins that Paul calls us away from, your homework is really simple. As soon as we finish, I want you to talk to one of us pastors or even just text us and say, hey, can I get with you sometime this week? Let us sit down with you and walk with you to help put away the things of the world and to pursue Christ in 2021. This is no time to be walking around in a slumber. This is a time to wake up. The day in which we find ourselves is one with pressing needs. And the greatest need is what Matt prayed for in the pastoral prayer, the gospel. We must live with gospel urgency, gospel clarity, gospel focus this year. That means being intentional. That means speaking up for Christ. It means leaving behind sinfulness, casting it off putting on Christ. It means doing what the writer of Hebrews says, laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, running with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as those who are fully aware that you, O oh God, will return. That you will come to claim your kingdom. God, that is not something we're ignorant of. So God, I pray that we would be mindful of the fact that every day we live is one more day closer to the day in which we stand before you. So God, fill us with a, a sense of urgency to have gospel conversations, to, to live for your glory, to pursue personal holiness. And God, I, I pray that if there are areas in which we are struggling, areas in which my brothers and sisters are just entangled in sins, specifically one of these sins that Paul dealt with today, God, I pray that, God, they would cast those sins off and pursue you, put you on. God, give us the maturity, the wisdom to make no provision for the flesh. So, God, if there is something in our life that is a temptation, something that is causing us to stumble, something that is causing us to sin, God, I pray that we would cast that off, that we would remove it, get rid of it. God, set our gaze upon you, upon what awaits us as your people, that we would live for your glory in 2021. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whom we await to come again. Amen.